Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the your the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. So we got canceled on ABC, and we went to Fox. And of course, the president of Fox got fired, and they replaced him with one of the worst men I've ever worked with. Uh, just a terrible man. I can't <laughs> mention his name, but it was John Matoyan. And uh, <laughs> and uh, and we came on Fox after The Simpsons, and the ratings were huge. It was like, hey, you did it. You have a hit. But this new president of Fox, it wasn't his hit, and he hated the show. But so he just didn't publicize the critic. Every week, he'd call me at the office. Well, I hated last night's show, too. He would call you to tell you he He'd hated. say, I hated that show. And finally, he said... What would you say to him? Would you say, hey, thanks? <laughs> I, don't, I really don't remember. I mean, we were, we were really flabbergasted. And I remember the great moment where he says, he said, I'm going to show you why your show is terrible. And we go to his office, and he's sitting there with a bunch of his assistants and aides and secretaries, and he goes, now watch this episode. And he puts it in the tape player, and everybody starts laughing, and they're laughing all the way through, and he's going, why are you laughing? What's the matter with you? And uh, he was just impossible. Steve, can we get him on the phone right now? Where's Steve? <laughs> try, try to get him on the phone right now. Okay, fine. Cool. <laughs> 
Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Stand Up New York. Please welcome the host of the James Altucher podcast. It's James Altucher and his guest today, Mike Reese. Hey, thanks for coming out in the rain. Hello, everybody. Mike must be really important. I'll, I'll find out how in, in my interview. I have no idea who he is now. Maybe the lights are in my eyes. It looks like 600 people here. It's astounding. Yeah, it, it is 600 people. Don't tell the actual number. I got to tell you a story, which is, I got, you know, I have my Simpsons talk. I've given it all over the world. And I got, I got invited to speak in Moscow in front of 15,000 people. And I'm scared to death. It's in the old Moscow Olympic Stadium. And I come out and the lights are just blazing at me. So I couldn't see a soul. And so I had no nerves at all. And I also couldn't hear a soul because nobody laughed at anything. Nobody laughed. And that night on the BBC, they reported Mike, they said Mike Reese told great jokes to a gravely silent audience. <laughs> or they, they could have said you bombed in Moscow. Or you <laughs> yeah. bombed Moscow. Wait, you know, so just to say, Mike Reese was one of the co-founding writers of The Simpsons, and you were also showrunner seasons three and four, and you still, to this day, work at, once a week, every Wednesday, including yesterday, yes. in California, on The Simpsons. Um, I just wanted to get that out of the way. We'll get to The Simpsons in a second. But why didn't you, t you before that, you worked for Johnny Carson, writing 60 jokes a day, right. including your famous Red Square Gorbachev joke. Why didn't you tell him that joke? Wow, yeah, it, you know, <laughs> silence is silence. Yeah, I could have told him anything. What was fun about that day, because I don't want your audience to think I bomb constantly, was, <laughs> was we, the day started at uh, like 11 in the morning, and I was speaking at 7 at night, and so I watched speaker after speaker come out and play to dead silence. So Richard Gere opened it up. He came out, Moscow, I love you. You're the greatest. Silence. And I go, oh, I'm doomed. And it was him and the Malcolm Gladwell bombed. The ultimate fighting champion of the world, a local boy, bombed. So I knew nothing was going to happen. I knew I would get nothing out of these people. But they do love the Simpsons there. Oh, and just the last... Just the finish of that anecdote was at the end of the event, we, we saw the organizer of the event, and we said, well, th that was something. You know, what do you say? And she goes, this has been a complete disaster. And Here's she said, tomorrow we're tearing down the venue. <laughs> I go, that's a bad review. You destroyed the venue. But here's what I don't understand, because with 15,000 people, even if 10% are laughing, you're gonna, that's a lot of people laughing, 1,500. Yeah, well, sure, make me feel worse about it, yeah. <laughs> yes, math proves I sucked. It, uh, it was just weird, but again, they were silent all day long. If you can't get them excited about Richard Gere, how, how are they gonna get excited about some Jew they never heard of, so. <laughs> so, so just to kinda set the scene, we're talking about the paperback version of your book, Springfield Confidential. That one, yeah. Jokes, secrets, and outright lies from a lifetime writing for The Simpsons. Mike Reese with Matthew Clickstein, forward by Judd Apatow. Judd Apatow. Who, Judd Apatow was a, a, a struggling stand-up comedian, sent you a spec script yeah. uh, for The Simpsons and, and one other show, The Chris Elliott Show. And you didn't bring him on to The Simpsons, but you brought him on to The Critic, your, your later show that you did right after The Simpsons. 
That is correct. And we just abused it. I mean, I first saw Judd when he was 20 years old doing stand-up comedy, and he was already there. He was great and funny and hilarious, and then we just kept kind of running into each other. And even it's sort of when we said there's outright lies in the title, and Judd wrote this beautiful foreword, how I helped him out and read his spec script. He already was a TV producer at that time. He'd produced a bunch of comedy specials. He helped create and run the Ben Stiller show, which is one of the great uh, sketch shows ever. So he, he was not some struggling guy when he came to me, but uh, it's a good story. But he, he really attributes a lot, obviously, to the critic, but then he was a writer on the Larry Sanders show. You were a writer on It's Gary Shandling's show. Mm -hmm. did, did, did you get, and that was before, the, that was right before The Simpsons. Do you feel you got a lot of your comedy sort of sitcom writing style from, like what did you learn from Gary Shandling? We learned a lot. There's all, it's a very funny thing in that uh, no two shows, I think, share more DNA than It's Gary Shandling Show and The Simpsons. So the lowest rated show at the time and the highest rated show. Correct, <laughs> yes. I mean, that was it. We found out, gee, what's the difference between these two shows? Oh, it's Gary Shandling. He, he just was not a popular performer. They didn't like, they didn't like the, this sensibility live action. But it was really something, it was all the same writers went right from one show to the next. And all these little tricks that we do on The Simpsons were on It's Gary Shandling Show first. The idea of doing a whole episode that's a parody of a movie. I'd never seen that before, but Gary Shandling did that. You know, breaking into musical numbers. It was, the show was experimental every single week and the public hated it. Uh, but that was it. But they sort of liked it when they were cute and yellow and animated. <laughs> so also, you know, again, I mentioned earlier, you were on Johnny Carson for a couple of years writing jokes. Did that put you in the mindset? Like you had to write 60 jokes a day for Correct. Johnny Carson, which has got to exercise that muscle. You probably, at the beginning of that phase, were you able to write 60 jokes a day? <laughs> we were able to do it. Al Jean and I started out together, and our first TV writing job was a show called uh, Not Necessarily the News. On HBO? On HBO, and you can see it on YouTube, and it was sort of, it was almost like a YouTube show. It was super fast little sketches and little bits intercutting the cast with news footage. You know, you take a piece of footage of Reagan and then cut an actor interviewing him. You see these tricks on Daily Show and that kind of thing now. But what was funny was that our first job, and we loved it, and Al and I would write sketch after sketch after sketch. Every, nothing had to be more than 30 seconds. And the staff they had hired who preceded us uh, were a bunch of very talented 60s potheads. And they just, they just smoked pot in the office all day, and they were... They put out one good sketchy a day, and that seemed to be what what the producers thought you could get out of a writer, one good sketch a day. And Al and I were churning out 10 mediocre sketches a day, and they loved the quantity of it. And then I guess you took that quantity style. Yeah. And then even on The Simpsons, I think even actually Judd Apatow says, running into you guys in a writing room, you're just sitting, one thing that's, one thing that's sort of 
a characteristic that you and Al have, your, your writing partner, is that you sit for 12 to 14 straight hours yeah. writing jokes, and there's just like some junk food there, and then you're just writing the whole time. At least that's that, Judd Apatow's observation. It's correct. I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't deserve any honors for being able to sit in a chair all day. It's, it's really easy. And in, <laughs> and in fact, I... Uh, you know, I fly back and forth to L.A. every week, six hours there, six hours back, and people go, how do you do it? And, you know, the guys at work go, how do you do that every week? I go, it's what I do here. I sit for six hours, and every three hours, someone puts food in front of me. It's, ex it's exactly the same. So, so one thing that I love about your career, and we've, We've had this conversation before, but also reading it in the book. Uh, you seem really focused at every step of the way on the process versus the outcome. It's not like you join The Simpsons thinking, boy, I'm going to win four primetime Emmys doing that <laughs> foreshadowing. It's not like you had any, uh, you thought you guys thought the show was going to get canceled. You didn't even tell anybody about it because you thought the show was going to get canceled immediately, but you just wanted to have fun and do something crazy. We want to have fun. Uh, and you I, still do that. <laughs> and I still have fun. I still love going to work every single week. I love those guys. I laugh all day. They're, they're, you know, one thing I learned writing the book, you know, and I didn't think I'd learn anything from my own book, but at the end, I turned in the manuscript and uh, the publisher goes, where's the dirt? Where's the conflict? And I go, Oh, that's the trick. That's the secret of The Simpsons as much as anything. There's no conflict. Everybody gets along. Everybody is really nice. The writers, the animators, the actors, everyone's really nice. And I thought, oh, is that weird? And then I listened to uh, Alan Alda's memoirs. And the same thing on MASH. Everybody was nice. And even uh, Eric Idle has, has a really good memoir out right now. And sure enough, Monty Python, they just sailed through. People didn't fight. They weren't egotistical about the material. The other thing was I learned from Eric Idle's book is they only cared about the writing. They cared so much about the writing, and then they didn't care who starred in the sketch. Nobody would say, I wrote that. I got to play that character. They would just write it and polish it and go, all right, who would be best? Who's, who's best to play the tall, angry man? Oh, maybe John Cleese. So. Well, so, so that's interesting. Do you think in the in the Simpsons, whoever got like writing, you think that's why they had a fairly flat structure in terms of who the producers were? Like everybody was a producer. Basically. Everybody's a producer. So nobody would have to fight for different titles per episode. Oh, it's partly. I, I gotta say again, it, it wasn't part of the structure of the thing. And everyone, it's the only reason we have forty-seven producers on the Simpsons. Forty-seven producers. I, I'm going to go on a sidebar here, which is. When you win an Emmy for a show, every producer gets an Emmy. And the Emmys changed the rules because of The Simpsons, where they said, if you win, we don't have enough statues. <laughs> so they, uh, it's only the top 15 producers now get an Emmy uh, if we win, which we haven't in 20 years. But, so, um, but the point is, that it, I mean... The only reason there's so many producers is everyone's worked there so long, and everybody just gets a little promotion every year. There's a little hierarchy, and we've all hit producer level. Uh, they just get along because they get along. I, I, I do, you think, do you think, is it because of personality, or, or how much is, does success breed 
getting along. Yeah, I think that's part of it. There's a there's comfort. There's all we know what we're writing. It's sort of what helped when the show started off. We were all friends first. We all knew each other. We all hung around again. Uh, I have to. I'll go back to the story. You sort of set it up, which was I. I was working on It's Gary Shandling show, the lowest rated show on TV, and Matt Groening calls me up and he says, "We're turning The Simpsons, which were one minute cartoons, we're turning it into a show. Do you want to work here?" And I said, "Why are you asking me? You don't know me." He says, "I'm asking you because everyone else turned it down, and that was it." And so. I got the job the way I got a wife. I, uh, I, I, you asked everyone. I, yeah, I wasn't the first choice, but I was available, and and so I took this job, and it was just a handful of guys who said, "Well, this will be a fun summer gig," and we all took it, and we just had a ball that summer. And again, nobody thought anyone was ever going to watch this, so we said, "Well, let's throw in all these crazy jokes we'll never get to do anywhere else." And Uh, because we were making 13 episodes, but everyone was certain we we're going to get canceled after six episodes. We knew we'd only get six, so we said we better pack it with jokes because this is our only chance. And let's change the credits every week because we can fit a few more jokes in there. So it was really just for fun, and we were sort of writing it for ourselves and for our friends. We said we can at least make our friends watch it. So, so that frenzied. Uh Attitude of like, let's just pack as many funny jokes in there, and for our friends, on that kind of set the tone for the next thirty seasons. Because <laughs> I know it's backbreaking. The, <laughs> the first few minutes, how many jokes would you say are packed into even the intro credits? The opening credits, I think, have seven jokes we change every week. Does that include the couch gag? It's, it's the couch gag and the blackboard were the two. For years, we changed it, and then when the show went to high def a few years ago. Al Jean, who's who's just relentless. I mean, just the hard Al Jean again, my former writing partner, who's now run the show for 20 years, is just a, a workhorse. And he goes, "It's high def. We can fit more jokes in." So now we have a thing called a flyby, where before you even see the Simpsons name, you see uh, one of our characters flying by in some contraption. We change a billboard every week. There's there's several more jokes we have to put in. So it's seven new jokes every week, and you think of a show like Home Improvement. We have more jokes in our credits than they have in half a season. So, <laughs> so going on that one, yeah. The, after the fourth season, you're the you were the showrunner for season three and season four, and which means you were kind of in charge of every aspect of the production. You you and Al Jean, and then. Um, You go off to do the critic, another <laughs> animation. Good career move. But, yeah, and, and uh, great, great show. I love, I love the show. But that was your 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 first episode. Was it that was like the lead into Home Improvement, which was like the highest rated show in television right. at the time? Do you think? And we'll skip around. We'll get back to the Simpsons. But I'm just curious, like after the first episode, which had something like 26 million viewers, some outrageous number compared to who watches TV now, and then the executive calls you up and says, you know. I hope you have good publicity or whatever. He's he's like kind of trashing the show to you after such a stellar opening. What were you? And this was you 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 were pouring your life into this show. This was your show, your baby. What did you? What was your initial reaction? It's uh, it's actually two, you're you're putting two stories together, which I should probably learn to do. When it was on a, when it <laughs> or was I on, should learn to not do it. I don't know. Yeah, when it was on ABC, 
It started off on ABC. We had Home Improvement coming out after us. And, you know, we were kind of trying to be a smart, zippy, irreverent show. And then, boom, you hit Home Improvement, the number one show on TV year after year. And we came on. We had great reviews, great ratings. And then two days later, my secretary walks in with a big box. And I go, what's that? And she goes, that's hate mail. And, and we have two more boxes of it out in the hallway. What did, what did it say? Like, what did any of these letters say? Why would people write hate mail about a cartoon? And there was a scene. It's like writing hate mail to Fred Flintstone. I know. Isn't that funny? They, uh, uh, I think in particular, uh, in the pilot of The Critic, he sleeps with a woman on the first date, and the son walks in on them. Uh, I think that they really hated. But mostly, they just hated, here's this kind of, smart, city-fied, you know, hip show, and then home improvement. You know, they wanted more home improvement. They wanted something slow and easygoing, but they hated it, hated it. So again, we, you know, we had predicted The Simpsons would get canceled after six. The critic got canceled after six. You know, the prediction, again, The Simpsons predicted it. We got canceled after six. Our ratings, you know, plummeted You were predicting week. before your time. Yeah, and so... Yeah, ABC canceled the show, and when they were about to cancel the show, it's, it was interesting. It was Bob Iger, who now uh, runs Disney, who's now my boss once again. But I'm, I'm sitting with Bob Iger at ABC, and he goes, look at the ABC schedule. Where do you think the critic belongs? And I said, it belongs on Fox after The Simpsons. And, and that was it. He was a wonderful man. He was nice. He was trying to help the show. But he just knew it was a terrible fit. And so he, he was, so we got canceled on ABC and we went to Fox. And Fo the president of Fox bought the show. We were going on after The Simpsons. Uh, and during the year it took us to make more critics, of course, the president of Fox got fired and they replaced him with one of the worst men I've ever worked with. Uh, just a terrible man. I can't can, can, mention his name, but it was John Matoyan. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and we came on Fox after The Simpsons, and the ratings were huge. And Fox had had a problem for about six years trying to find a show that worked with The Simpsons. I think they tried eight different shows, and nothing worked. You know, just the audience would watch The Simpsons and then bail and go somewhere else. Everyone who watched The Simpsons watched The Critic and was like, hey, you did it. You have a hit. But this new president of Fox, it wasn't his hit, and he hated the show. And so after that, that hit premiere, he called us up and said, all right, you had a good week. Let's see how you do next week without publicity. And we go, why are you doing that? Why don't you want to publicize your hit? And uh, no one to this day can figure out what his rationale was. But so... He just didn't publicize the show. Every week, we'd put a new critic on. Every week, he'd call me at the office. Well, I hated last night's show, too. He would call you to tell you he He'd hated. say, I hated that show. And finally, he said... What would you say to him? Would you say, hey, thanks? <laughs> I, don't, I really don't remember. I mean, we were, we were really flabbergasted. And I remember the great moment where he says, he said, I'm going to show you why your show's terrible. And we go to his office, and he's sitting there with a bunch of his... his his assistants and aides and secretaries, and he goes, now watch this episode. And he puts it in the tape player, and everybody starts laughing, and they're laughing all the way through, and he's going, why are you laughing? What's the matter with you? And uh, 
He was just impossible. Steve, can we get him on the phone right now? Where's Steve? <laughs> try, try to get him on the phone right now. Okay, fine. Cool. <laughs> so, so were, was there ever a point, like, again, you were so focused on, on process and being funny that moment and not thinking about outcomes, but here's, obviously you wanted a great outcome for this. Did you get depressed? Was there any point where you were like, oh man, I, I made a mistake. I left the Simpsons and... This guy no, a jerk I really and... didn't. I didn't. I know Al did, and Al, you know, Al and I tried a few different things, and then uh, the second after a while, we decided to part company very amicably, and he went right back to The Simpsons, and he just he never left again, and been running the show. You know, we ran the show together for two years, and it was the worst job I ever had. It nearly killed me. We'd work hundred hour weeks. 51 weeks a year. Because you're managing Christmas every... Like, what are the, every single aspect of it. You would... I mean, your main job was supervising the writing and the scripts. You know, somebody writes a Simpsons script and then the staff sits together in a big room and they go through it a line at a time. And we go through the scripts from top to bottom eight complete times uh, just to get the script in shape. And then we read it out loud with the cast... So you've got to do that. You're supervising the writing. Uh, I, if you watch The Simpsons, every joke on the show is the result of one hour's work by eight people. I did the math on it. So it's about 100 hours by eight people working to get one script in shape. And so, uh, but so you've got to do that. Then you direct the actors. Then you supervise the animation and storyboards and... There's all kinds of stuff in an animated show you wouldn't even think you have to do. It's like the first time it rained on The Simpsons. You know, we just put in a line, it is a rainy day in Springfield, and they immediately come to us, all right, what does Bart wear in the rain? You know, because they wear the same things. Every day. What does he wear? What does Marge wear? Does Marge have a tall umbrella to cover her hair? Does she have a bonnet? What does Homer wear? What is it? What does rain look like on The Simpsons? Is it yellow? Is it drops? Is it lines? It's... It's everything has to be invented when you're doing a show. So we had to do that. I, I think I said I directed the actors. I had to edit the audio tracks, had to edit a picture, supervise music and sound effects. It was just relentless. And the only thing I was trained to do was write. And so I had 50 other jobs when I was running the show, none of which I was trained for. So, so you really just purely like writing the jokes and some of the plot points and the stories, that was what you loved that yeah. was that was your fun. I like as to opposed write. to kind of rising up in the TV hierarchy. There are people who love it, who love oh this challenge and that challenge. I don't even like running the comedy room. I hate that being the boss of comedy. I love to be a writer in a room full of writers just throwing out jokes. So in fact, when I returned to The Simpsons, I'd left for a few years, and I went back and my conditions of returning, I said, uh, I am not the boss. I said, whoever is in the room is my boss. I don't want to be the boss of comedy. So I walk in my first day, and it's me and a 22-year-old kid. It was his second week on the job, and I just go, all right, boss, what are we doing today? And did he, did he take the reins? Did he, did he start ordering you around? <laughs> he quit pretty soon after that, yeah. So, so kind of along those lines, fast-forwarding to 2019, you were just writing on the staff of the Oscars for yes. 2019, which is the, the first Oscars in 30 years without a host, like Kevin Hart yeah. quit. So what was, you're writing without a host, you're writing basically the, 
when they're all staring at some kind of screen, all, all the presenters, all these great actors can't memorize any lines at all. Uh -huh. and, and it's so obvious they're reading from something and it's all stilted. You were writing those. <laughs> I would write those. And you know, my well, Why can't they act those? Why is it always so clear that they're reading from something? It's funny. <laughs> the best yeah. actors in the world. And they do, and the amazing thing is, they do have a rehearsal. And, and this, in fact, I wish they would televise this because the day before the Oscars, all the stars come in, they run through the entire show, um, and they read off a randomly chosen name for a winner. And then it was, it was sort of funny. They hire uh, extras to come up and accept the award, and the extras have done their homework, and they give a long speech <laughs> that's pretty good. And you go, oh, I wish they were this good. But the point of this is, when they have this rehearsal, that's the Oscars you wish you saw because they're all having a great time. Everybody shows up in jeans and sweatshirts and a baseball cap. They're smiling. They're having so much fun. Uh, you know, and then Oscar night comes and they're in tuxes and everybody's stiff and not having any fun. But I, that was my favorite part of the process. Do you, given that there's this rehearsal before, do they, this is the stupidest question in the world, but do they know who's going to win? They don't know. No. They really do not know. And uh, uh, in fact, this again, you ask, what do you do with the Oscars? This is the kind of job I really hated. And you don't even think about this, which is when they announce, uh, and the winner is so-and-so, you know, it takes a minute for them to get to the stage, and you have to write something for the announcer to say, while they're crossing a minute of material, and you have to write it for every single nominee, just in, even if you go, well, this guy's not going to win, but you still have to write a minute of material. But then you get to the super boring categories like uh, uh, best documentary short, and those guys have terrible seats. They're, they're way in the back, which means they have a three-minute walk up to the stage, and you have to write three minutes of material about some guy from Burkina Faso who made a documentary short. You have to write for each one of them. It's just this huge amount of material that nobody's interested and which you know mathematically 80% of it's going to be, will never get used. So, so you're not going to take that job for 2020. I, uh, <laughs> or I, you will. You can't help yourself, I have a feeling. What, what happened was I, <laughs> I, I really was not enjoying the job just because it was, you know, The Simpsons really spoiled me where if you do something good, they use it. And, uh, and you know, some rules of logic apply. And so every day I would come home and tell my wife, I'm quitting, I'm quitting. And she goes, you are not quitting because I'm going to the Oscars. And, <laughs> And uh, so, if he if he gets offered the job next year, oh, will 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 you make him go? Yes, yeah. I'd love to go again. I would love to go again. It was the best. Yeah. Night All right, ever. so you're you're committed. Oscars right, 2020. I get it. It was very very exciting Oscar night, and I was in the green room with all the actors. It was 80 famous famous movie stars and me, and I was so nervous. I go up to the bar to get a drink, and the bartender was Wolfgang Puck. So everybody was somebody, and I'm there all night, and I, I will tell you, it's just kind of funny insight. Famous actors are live wires. At least when you put them in a room together, every one of them was the life of the party. Every single one, someone like Javier Bardem, you don't think of him as the class clown. He was a nut, and 
What's the guy? Who's the Bob Fosse guy? Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell. Nuts. He was like a Woody Woodpecker. And it was just funny to see all of these guys jammed in one room having so much fun together. Again, it was like the rehearsal. They really enjoy each other's company. They're really outgoing people. The only person who talked to me all night uh, was Julia Roberts. <laughs> Julia Roberts said, sit down, you're blocking the TV. <laughs> now I'm definitely not getting invited back next year. So, okay, I, I want to ask a, a trivia question to the audience because this astounded me. I don't know anything about the process of animation. How many individual drawings do you think were done to create one of those first episodes of The Simpsons before there was computer art and stuff like that? How exact number of thousands? Uh, 22 times 20 minutes times 24 uh, times a hand. 24 frames a second, 22 minutes. 60 seconds per minute, so that many. I'm, I'm going to believe you, so it's 24,000. 24,000. And here's what I don't drawings. understand. Who ca- I, this is how naive I am. Who came up with the idea that, hey, let's make 24,000 drawings and make a TV show instead of just filming a bunch of people in a room? Oh, he put down, he put, he's got 31,000. 31, I've heard that number, too. I mean, you asked different. I, for years, I heard it was 32,000. Partly, we're not 22 minutes anymore. Now we're 20 uh, minutes. I know it's 24,000 hand-drawn drawings every week, and for 15 years, it was, every drawing was hand-painted, and you would just see, you'd walk into the studio, and it was just, you would see a wall of buckets of yellow paint because we needed so much yellow in the show. So, so other than like the salaries of the actors, like what makes that a better process to do than filming, say, Friends or Seinfeld? Uh, where it's just like one room with a bunch of friends. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, this is why TV went 20 years without an animated show on it. It didn't make between sense. Between Flintstones and Between Simpsons. Flintstones and The Simpsons, it hadn't been tried again to the point where... When the show was starting up, nobody knew how to do it. We literally didn't know the process, and everyone who knew the process from the Flintstones was dead. And so, <laughs> and so we really just reinvented it. And then having reinvented it, you know, The Simpsons still operates on 1991 technology. It's like, it works. You know, yes, we could do everything with computers much faster and easier, but... We go, that's not how we do it. We've always done it this way. Uh, there's a story I tell in the book where the show was and continues to be hand-drawn, and for 10 or 15 years, it was hand-painted, and that was the huge part of the job. And you can imagine how hard that is if you ever painted a car or something, do all that painting. And the producers of the show would say, you know, we can do the painting in computer. We don't have to go through this step. And the animators said, no. They said, people will notice. The show will lose warmth and character. And so we did an experiment. We experimented with the entire American public where we said, we're going to do one episode, computer painted. We won't tell anyone what it is. And if one person in America calls up and said, what the hell was with last night's show? We'll never do that again. And we did it. It's a, and it's, uh, for the trivia buffs, it's the episode where the Simpsons get a tennis court and Pete Sampras was on the show. And that was it. That was computer painted. 
nobody noticed. And uh, so you would have thought, all right, so automatically we're computer pained from here on in. But no, it took us another five years before we did it that way. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, Good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important. And I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey there, Brenda. It's Carol. Exactly. So which leg are we operating on? You mean arm. It's all connected. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future. Are you sure you're an orthopedist? Actually, I'm a Sagittarius. Especially when it comes to your finances. Do you have a question? Are you a certified financial planner? Yes, I'm a CFP professional. CFP professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.
So I'm going to say you now have segued into an interesting story, which is all your guests that you've had on The Simpsons, but most notably a recent controversy, which is the Michael Jackson one, I have to ask, because now it's been pulled from the sort of rotating Simpsons that you can get on, on TV since the documentary. You wrote that episode. I did write that episode. <laughs> and it's a very funny episode. It's uh, Homer's roommates in a mental institution with a guy who thinks he's Michael Jackson, and Michael Jackson plays that, that voice. That's correct. It, uh, and yes, it was pulled from syndication, and last year alone, I earned $14 from that episode. So <laughs> I'm really going to miss that money. Uh, and it's funny. It's, in fact, it's of the 10 Simpsons I wrote, uh, you know, I've worked on all 650, but the 10 I wrote the script and had my name on them, that's my favorite. I thought it came out the best. There seems to be a demarcation. You know, the fans go, don't pull that from syndication, and we get it, uh, except for the people who've seen the four-hour documentary, which I have not seen, but they go, if you see this documentary, you say, gee, we can't show this anymore. Uh, but it came out great. It was Michael Jackson. This is long before there were any allegations about him. Uh, he was at the peak of his stardom. This was uh, right after, right between Thriller and Bad. He called The Simpsons and said, I want to be on your show. And we said, great. We worked out this idea. And we're meeting with him. And uh, he said, you know, I could write an original song for the episode. And Matt Groening goes, oh, you don't have to do that. <laughs> and he goes, no, really, be no problem. And Matt's going, really, Michael, don't bother. And we're going, shut up, Matt. <laughs> and so he wrote the Lisa, It's Your Birthday, the song that ends that episode. Um, he was a pleasure to deal with. He was such a nice guy. He, the interesting thing is he was big. He was big and buff. It was this this horrible realization that Michael Jackson could kick your ass. He was a big buff guy and friendly, shook everyone's hands. There was just, there, there was no real weirdness about the guy until we're recording the episode. Now, I'd been to rehearsals with him. Uh, we were at rehearsals at his manager's house, a guy named Sandy Gallen, who uh, represented, in the 80s, represented Michael Jackson, Dolly Parton, Kenny Rogers, and Barbara Streisand. And we're in his house, and Sandy Gallen goes, you know, I haven't been in every room of my house yet. And we go, wow, you're rich. And uh, so I'm at rehearsals with Michael, and he, he acted, and he sang. He's singing Ben and Thriller three feet from me. It was magic. <laughs> so then we get to the recording, and we do all Michael's acting first. And he's terrible. He cannot act. And James L. Brooks, an Oscar-winning director, came in to direct Michael and, you know, couldn't get anything great out of him. But we go, well, once Michael sings, this will make the show. And when it came time to sing, Michael goes, uh, Kip, could you come in here? And this shrimpy little white guy walks in named Kip Lennon. And we go, who's this? And he goes, this is my authorized sound alike. And Michael just... <laughs> And he, moved, he stood two feet away while Kip Lennon did all the singing you hear in that episode and sang, Lisa, it's your birthday, everything you hear. And Michael's just laughing and laughing. And, and we're going, we said, Michael, why are you doing this? And he said, it's a joke on my brothers. And uh, 
And if that was the weirdest thing Michael Jackson ever did, <laughs> that show would still be on the air. So, do you know what the joke was he was doing on his brothers? No, I, I, no, I, I'm not going to get into that, the mind of Michael Jackson. No, I, I, that's a dangerous place to be. No, I don't know. I don't know what he was you know, you, Folks, you heard it here first. Michael Jackson was a weird guy. <laughs> I don't think this is the first place they've heard it. <laughs> so, so, okay, in terms of the structure of like a show, and you know, you guys are all funny, you're in a writer's room, I never understood the process, like, is, it, is the more funny people the better, <laughs> like throwing jokes at, at something, or if, if one person was assigned, hey, you write this one, you write this one, would that, what's, what's a better process? The, the process works. Um, the pro and, you know, The Simpsons is written that way. Somebody writes a script, and then six, eight people sit around going through a line at a time, just going, let's make it better. Can we make this better? And it's so democratic. You're just sitting there throwing out jokes, and if you make the room laugh, all right, that line goes in. So and can, I, can I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. but you, let's say you see a line. Let's say you personally saw a line. What's an example where you're like, hmm, I, don't, I think I can make this better, where you made the line better? Uh, it's, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I need time for that. All right, the truth is I've never made anything better. I, no, I can't think of it. Um, I can't think of a good line right. off the bat. Uh, but that's it. That's what I do. I sit there and just fire off jokes. So, again, it, it's what you're talking about with Johnny Carson. It's as much quantity and endurance. And, uh, you know, you, you all know the stories of comedians who live hard lives and take drugs and stay up all night. A TV writer can't do any of that. I mean, our drug is eight hours sleep. Is everyone has to get a good night's sleep because it's just it's a, it's a marathon every single day. You got to be sharp at ten in the morning, and you got to be sharp at two in the morning because very often the days go that way. And virtually every show is done that way. I mean, The Simpsons. You can imagine, oh, this is a gang effort. But something like Frasier, a show I liked that was. So polished and intricately plotted. Same thing. It's just a bunch of Jews sitting at a table. <laughs> from Harvard. Yeah. I think that's true, actually. I think all the showrunners of Frasier were always from Harvard. There's, Harvard a, there's a lot of Harvard people doing a lot of stuff. All the late night just shows. Just like The Simpsons. What? Just like half the Simpsons writers, all the Futurama writers, the head writers on every single late night show. There was a time, I guess... Uh, what was it, Letterman up against Leno. They go, who will win the late night wars? And it's like, it doesn't matter. They're all being written by the same six Harvard guys. <laughs> and The Daily Show, uh, the, uh, every year for the Emmys. What, what I like is, you know, it would be terrible if Harvard guys were just this, this closed network running, you know, sort of monopolizing TV. But they do the good shows every year all the Emmy-nominated sitcoms are run and often created by these Harvard Lampoon guys. None of this should make you think Harvard is a funny place. It's, uh, it is not. But it does show that, like, you got the call one day, hey, from the Harvard Lampoon, hey, we've got this guy who we think you should look at. You looked at him, you hired him at The Simpsons, and the rest yeah. is history. Right, it was Conan O'Brien. I mean, even, even for a humor magazine that had been around 140 years, they called me once in New York. They said, we've got this guy here. We've never seen anything quite like him. And it was Conan. And 
It was he was eighteen and fully formed. The 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 nut you see on TV uh, every night. That was what he was like when he was eighteen, and that's what he was like at the Simpsons from ten in the morning till two in the morning. Like, it what do you just, think set him apart? Like, what what did you notice uh, that made him a little different than even the funniest people you knew? He's just he's so fast and so funny and. You know, just improvises on himself. There's a, there's a level of performance he brings uh, to his comedy all the time where he's doing the jokes and then commenting on the jokes and then he's pretending to be another guy, criticizing the jokes and it just, and just spinning off, you know, and, you know, the way he, it's like improv, only funny. And it's uh, <laughs> But that was it. We would find he would just start telling a story. Or I'll tell you a funny story. Or, it's not a funny story, but it's, it's an instructive. <laughs> we'll story. decide. Okay. We'll decide. Um, I, for my birthday, my sister gave me a voice changer. It was a little bullhorn, and you would talk into it, and it could make you sound like a baby, or it could make you sound like a robot. You know, two settings, and because what else is there? And so. <laughs> I brought it to work, and we're all fiddling with this thing, and none of it was very funny. And then Conan picks it up, and he's doing the shtick we're all doing. Hey, here's the baby and the robot, and they live together. And he's improvising this sitcom about a baby and a robot living together. But then he did something none of us ever thought of. It's the baby goes, hey, look who's at the door. It's Conan O'Brien. And then Conan made himself a third character, like the wacky neighbor in the robot baby sitcom. And... <laughs> I go, that, you know, that was sort of great. I said, wow, none of us thought to do that, to add ourselves into the show. You know, it's interesting because a lot of times interviewing, let's say, stand-up comedians, they say, oh, it takes 10 years, 15 years before you start to, you know, really be funny on stage. And it seems like with the comedy writing for TV, you guys, that muscle just gets quickly developed. You start writing 60 jokes a day, then you're writing for It's Gary Shandling, then you make the best you know, animated sitcom of all time. <laughs> it is true. It's. A, I mean, I wish I could say there was a level of skill and practice. Like, do you find that, that you got better it. over time? Mm, no, <laughs> no, no. I really don't. You know, when The Simpsons started again, we just took who we could get for the show, and not one, except for Al Jean and myself. The other six writers on the show had never written a TV script before. They'd never written a half hour. So a lot of them had written jokes. Some had written sketches, you know, which are eight minutes. Nobody had written a script before. And everybody's first script, you know, right off the bat was great and, you know, became these famous episodes. So, you know, it ain't brain surgery. It's, it's just not that hard. I mean, the, all the people we're talking about, including me, they didn't study it. They never read a book. They didn't think they were going to go into this. They didn't take writing courses in college. All we did is... We sat on our butts and watched TV all day long. And we weren't studying it. We just liked TV. I liked TV. I would used to watch eight hours of TV every day. And my mom would go, where's all this TV going to get you? And 10 years later, <laughs> hey, look at me. I'm earning more than dad. And he's a doctor. So, so, so with 30 seasons in now, and with, I don't know, it's like 20 episodes, 22 episodes a season. 22 a year, yeah. And I, I obviously, I'm, I apologize for asking a question you must have been asked a million times before, but 
how do you keep coming up with new, fresh stories? The, the big trick we have now is we have a lot of writers. There's a lot of guys like me who work one day a week, two days a week, but we just have a lot of minds working on it. We have about 20 writers, and we do about 20 episodes a year. So every writer just has to come in with one really great, fresh idea. And if someone comes in with a great concept, then we just we start the machinery going. And then the jokes come and the characters come. We've got so many people to deal with. But someone's just got to come in with a fresh area. And but how does it get, how does it, like, you must hear all these pitches and you say, oh, no, we, we did that. Because there's only, I don't, I don't know if this is true or not, but maybe there's, there are only so many skeletons of plots and everything's just kind of riffs off these basic skeletons. I don't know. It is true. I mean, we do it, we can plug different characters into what is a venerable old story. And yeah, I mean, by season seven, I think it was, every single member of the Simpsons family had been to jail. <laughs> Everyone's been to jail. Everyone's had a crush on each, they could possibly have a crush on we do a travel episode every year. Simpsons go somewhere and do something. And uh, we're running out of countries. We're running out of countries to send them to. So I don't know what we'll do about that. So we, we have a couple of formulas and that kind of thing. Uh, but it's hard. And the hardest thing about it is the fans know the show. They know the show better than us. And they love to bust us on something. And the famous case was... We did an episode just two years ago where Homer, Homer was smuggling snakes. Now, mind you, clearly you've been through all the normal ideas when you get to an episode about Homer smuggling snakes. And we, we put that on the air and go, well, you don't see that too often. And one of the fans on the website goes, you had Homer smuggling beer on another episode. And it's like, all right. And then I looked it up and it was... It was 22 years between smuggling beer and smuggling snakes. 22 years, and the, the guy who was complaining was only 14 years old. <laughs> so, um, you know, it reminds me, though, also of uh, you have that one episode, which is now a famous episode, where Spark goes into the future, and, and Lisa is president, but she's dealing with balancing a budget caused by the a, a budget mess is caused by the former president, President Trump. Correct. And this was what, what, what year was that episode? That was the year 2000. And so it was 16 years later, Trump was elected. And I got it again. Do you think I, he got inspiration from that, that show? <laughs> oh, you know, well, it's typical where they go, how do the Simpsons do it? They're crazy ideas. Well, Trump had actually been mulling a run for president. And in fact, the original joke was President Depp. You know, we just needed this idea. Who is the dumbest person? That was the setup to the joke. Who's the worst possible guy to be president? And the joke at the time was President Depp. And it was partly where just we watched it in rough animation. Going, Depp, you don't hear it. You don't know what it meant. And so someone said, President Trump. And... Everyone goes, all right, good enough. Stuck it in the show. So 16 years later, Trump is elected president. And we at The Simpsons had no recollection of this. Again, we needed our eagle-eyed fans to go, no, you predicted this 16 years ago. It was like, what? And it shows you about the ego of The Simpsons writers. Nobody even pretends they're the one who thought of the joke. Nobody 
in the nobody on the staff knows who thought of President Trump and pitched mm -hmm. that as a joke. And that's um, you could dine out on that forever. But again, <laughs> there's, it's just something I, I, I've learned about comedy is if you keep saying enough stupid things, <laughs> sooner or later some of them will come true. So, so you know, post Simpsons and post you know all these shows and. Um, you know, you've also written like 18 children's books, right? Yep. And, uh, but you also write a lot of jokes for uh, news, news people or, or like the Oscars where you're, you're hired specifically to write jokes. Is there a process you go through? Like, is there kind of, do you think to yourself premise punchline or are you just thinking like wacky stuff? I just, I, I just talk to myself. It's just that it's a long, my life is an internal cocktail party where I'm always thinking, oh, what's something funny I can say here? And I'm talking to myself thinking, oh, what would I say? And unlike life, you know, you get a second chance. Oh, maybe I'd say this. I mean, I like it. I like crafting jokes, but once I make them, I don't care. I don't care if they go out on TV or just, I just like having them out of my head. So, so like if, if Al Roker calls you and says, hey, I'm meeting the Pope, right. what, what would you... What could I say? What would you like? How do you start thinking about that? Yeah, you tend to be uh, Al Roker and meeting the Pope, or it was just. Can I tell? I'll tell yeah. the whole story. It was. I met a priest at a party, and he said to me, "He said, you want to see the Pope's app?" And I said, "Sure," because I thought he said ass, but he. <laughs> but the Pope had it. The Pope had an app called Joke with the Pope, and every day, a celebrity would tell a joke to the Pope, and. They said, this is going to benefit a charity in Venezuela, an orphanage in Venezuela. And I go, how? And they never explained it. There was, and soon enough, the charity shut down because I guess all the orphans died. But that's... <laughs> but so that was it. Celebrity, every day a celebrity tells a joke to the Pope. So one night at midnight, I get a call from this priest and he says, we need a joke for Al Roker to tell the Pope and it's got to be about the weather and religion, and it's got to be clean. I'll call you back in an hour. <laughs> and it's like, well, this is what I do. I like to do that. If, it wasn't, if I wasn't doing that, I'd be doing Sudoku or something. It's just the same thing, just something to think about. So you just think, oh, weather and what's going on and religion. It's all, I mean, I hate to break it down because I don't think this way, but I think the general process is Venn diagrams, religion, what goes with religion, what goes with weather, what has an overlap. I mean, that's how I wrote the joke. And the joke sucked, but, you know, it was free and it was midnight and it was, the joke was, Al Roker said, uh, the drought is so bad in, in, in the Napa Valley that the Pope went to the Napa Valley to turn the wine into water. <laughs> Thank you for your respectful silence. No, that was you know, good. That's good. It's a good, you know, it's a, it's a joke. A lot of times things just aren't quite jokes. I go, well, that's a joke. It fits, it, it fits every qualification of a joke except being entertaining. <laughs> so, no, it's entertaining. I, I disagree with you. But okay. you have... You have the, I, you've had the ideal job for you for the past, I don't know, four, 35 years. 35 years, years yeah. And, and someone listening to this, you know, they're, they're probably thinking, oh, he's so lucky and it's so fun. Like, how does someone start thinking about their own careers? Their parents are saying, oh, be a lawyer, be a doctor. 
you know, how did you fine tune that career muscle so that you chose the right path for yourself? It was really all I was good for. I mean, I, what I thought I would be was like what I think a lot of guys like me do, which is they become funny lawyers and lawyers who get a lot of laughs in court and then the client goes to death row. And <laughs> I, that's, that was what I thought. I, I'd never met anyone in show business. I didn't think it would be my career. And, uh, and that was it. I, just, I was writing for the College Humor magazine and somebody at National Lampoon Magazine read my stuff and hired me there, and then someone in Hollywood read my stuff in National Lampoon, hired me there. I just bounced along. And in fact, it's, a, it's career advice for anybody is there, there are people who are ambitious and have big visions and plans, and then there's these kind of schmucks like me who just say yes to anything that comes along. You can, you can go pretty far just by never turning anything down. But saying yes in the direction of something you love to do. Like you, oh, know, yeah. you, you yeah. didn't say I yes mean, to a bar exam, for instance. Right. Yeah, I just, I wouldn't, some, you know, but if they asked me take the bar exam, <laughs> some said, oh, this might be fun. I'd do that too. I just say yes to stuff. You can go a long way that way. And mind you, <laughs> I mean, there's something wrong with me. I, I do this for a living. There's something kind of busted in my head. But okay, that's a job now. It didn't used to be a job to pay somebody. You know, there was one jester at the court, and that was it. And everybody else was dying of the plague. And I would, so that was it. I, I can make jokes. I can't really do much else. And thank God it's a job. I'm the luckiest man in the world. Except you could write children's books, movies, TV shows. <laughs> this book, Springfield Confidential, which uh, has just come out in paperback, and I yes, encourage everyone to get it. Yes, all your cheese. So many great oh. stories. Yeah. And Mike Reese, thanks once again for coming on the, the podcast. I love it here. Thank you. Thanks. Anytime. So much fun. It always goes so fast. Thank you. Thanks. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.